Let's get into a little bit of review. We'll get into the text. Uh, so far, beginning in Galatians chapter 5, Paul has been, uh, through the whole letter, charging these Galatian believers to remain free from the law and not to be entangled, he says, again, to a yoke of bondage by keeping the old covenant and its regulations. He's saying the Lord has made you free. He's purchased you with his blood, and you therefore have no right to subject yourself to anything that is found outside of his covenant, okay? the covenant that he secured with his blood. That's a nice effect. <laughs> We're blood-bought. Okay? We've been purchased. Uh, we do not belong to ourselves. And anything we do in life should be under his specific direction. And uh, if we're not certain, we should get his permission. Amen? And, uh, and so Paul warns these people that the full yoke of the law comes by way of circumcision. And if they chose circumcision and obedience to the law as their method uh, to become pleasing to God, to become righteous, he says that Christ will profit you absolutely nothing. Nothing, if that's the path you choose. And he says that this would, would end in being estranged from Christ. He says you will fall from grace. And then what happens when you embrace the law is that you cease to mature in the faith. It's done. You've totally arrested your development in Christ. And then Paul reminds them that the new covenant believer, uh, truly what he is called to in the new covenant is to rely upon the Holy Spirit to grow in righteousness. He's the one that produces that in us. That faith is manifested through love. Righteousness is not something we can generate on our own. It's not something we can accomplish in our own strength. It's the work of the Spirit. And the reason that it has to be the work of the Spirit is because God's standard of love is not native to the human heart. It is not. It's not native. Okay, we are broken, and it requires the Holy Spirit. But also, Paul had mentioned that, hey, you guys had originally uh, started out well. You were walking in the simple truth of the gospel. You started out by walking or living by the power of the Spirit, and then through this trickery of the Judaizers, you began to depend on yourselves. You began to walk in the strength of your own flesh when you started keeping the law. And so that, that is what brings us to the next section of Scripture before we get to the New Covenant's alternative to walking according to the law. Of course, that's walking in the Spirit. So if you're able, uh, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading out of the New King James. Did I tell you guys which verse? I did that to first service too. I, I just noticed that just now. And I don't even have it written in my notes. So push pause on the recording. Don't want the public knowing how unprepared I am. Galatians 5, verse 7 uh, through verse 15. Paul says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. That is, you'll see it my way. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. Let's pray. Well, Father, uh, initially we want to keep Maggie in mind and lift her up to you. Lord, you, no one can minister her to her body like you can. And Lord, she's done everything within her power to avoid what has happened to her. And so I pray, Lord, that you would rescue her from it, that you would heal her body. And Lord, as a result, you would restore her to us. So I just pray that you'd be with her, that you'd protect her, and uh, that she would look to you for courage and for encouragement. And Lord, that you would bring her back to us safely. And Lord, as we continue in the text, Paul's final words before the great transition in the book, um, that you would take these realities, these truths, these concerns that you have, and that you would settle them deep within our hearts, and that we would walk in them. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. Go ahead and return to verse 7, and we'll go line by line through the text. Paul says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So as we've noted already, and as Paul has uh, twice before, things started out so well in Galatia. Paul went there on his first missionary journey. He preached the gospel. He established fellowships. He went there again. He visited them. He brought the letter to them from the council in Jerusalem. He taught them again. He established elders in every city. He got churches going, if you will. Things were going so well. Uh, They were living uh, this new life outside of paganism by the enablement of the Holy Spirit. And no doubt they were excited about it. How many of you guys were excited about your conversion when you first came to Christ? It was sweet. It was life. And I'm sure that just as it was for you, as it was for them, that people were getting saved through their testimony. It was glorious. The gospel had saved them, delivered them, redeemed them, and it was pouring out into others. But somewhere along the way, because of these men who had come to the region, they lost sight of something very important. As Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says, he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, keeping your eyes on Christ and his gospel. They got distracted by the Judaizers. They took their eyes away from the simplicity 
as Paul says to the Corinthians, the simplicity of Christ and his gospel, they got tangled up in the law. And Paul says, you've been derailed by it. You've been hindered from obeying the truth. So let's, let's keep that particular statement in context. Being hindered from obeying the truth has everything to do with keeping the law. The law is, Paul says, the hindrance. The hindrance. Remember, uh, in Galatians 2, 11 through 14, Peter was influencing Gentile believers to eat food according to the Jewish dietary regulations. And Paul, in front of everybody, got in his face, and he accused him of not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Peter, you are a distraction. He calls him a hypocrite, okay, rebukes him. So obedience to the law, Paul is saying here, keeps you from obeying the truth. And so verse 8 makes perfect sense. This persuasion then does not come from him who calls you. So listen, whenever someone tries to convince you that as a Christian you should be keeping the law, or they make you feel guilty for not, just remember, as Paul has said, those are the people that are not free. They are not free. They're the ones that are bound to a yoke of bondage. They're under the curse of the law. They're the ones estranged from Christ. They've fallen from grace. They've strayed from the truth of the gospel. And their message does not come from Christ. And if a message does not come from Christ, you guys, it is not Christian. It's not. It's not a part of the covenant that we have been sealed to by the blood of, the, the blood of Christ. And if they're like the Judaizers, these people that come to you or will come to you, they have all kinds of logical reasons why you should keep some or all of the law of Moses. They'll talk about how it transformed their lives, how it opened their eyes to just so many deeper things. I get tired of that, hearing that. They'll talk about how because of this, they're so much closer to God. Don't be intimidated by any of that. Okay, they themselves, they have not been persuaded by Jesus, but some other person who has misrepresented the truth of the gospel to them. That's what's happened. Okay? And you can find an infinite supply of people like that on the internet. They're out there. I, I'm amazed with the diversity and divergent views of people that have found themselves a platform on the internet, okay? They're nuts. Don't follow them. They're everywhere. There's a handful in our community, and according to Paul, uh, in various places in the New Testament, according to Jesus, their doctrine needs to be exposed, and the person doing it needs to be exposed. It needs to be held in check by God's people because it's no less dangerous today than it was back then. It's exactly the same. And as Paul says, Christ has established the church as the pillar and the ground of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. And if that is what we are, the pillar and the ground of truth, we have an obligation, don't we? To uphold what God has created in the church. We have a duty to expose error. We have a responsibility to uphold truth. Otherwise, what would be left to restrain the spread of error? 
I mean, think about it. If the evangelical voice was completely muzzled on planet Earth, could you imagine if the church was muzzled and the truth of the word could not go out, what would become of the world? Be nothing, nothing to restrain it. Verse 9, Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. For you younger people, leaven is like yeast that spreads through dough and causes it to, well, if it's left alone, it causes it to rot really, really fast. Okay? But it, of course, we want it to rise and make our bread pretty and everything else. But left to its own, uh, it will corrupt the bread. And, and as an agent of corruption, leaven is used in the New Testament to describe a few things. Uh, two things come to mind specifically, immoral behavior and the dangers of false doctrine, dangerous doctrine. Okay? So let's talk uh, just a second and look at both. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul used leaven to illustrate the dangers of a fellowship overlooking sexual morality within its own ranks. You can read 1 Corinthians 5 later. Um, if you're not familiar with it, it's quite shocking what was occurring in a church. And the church was tolerating it, even boasting about their liberty, their sexual liberty in the fellowship. But whenever sexual morality is left alone in the church, and it's allowed to take its course like leaven in a lump of dough, it will spread and it will corrupt until it can't be corrected. If the leadership winks at it and the church tolerates it, it'll spread until it can't be reversed. Now, this sort of thing has been happening for quite some time in a number of, uh, of what we call mainstream denominations, infecting both the leadership and the laity alike, and today... Those churches are in name only. Name only. They're nothing now. They're no longer uh, what we would call a legitimate member of the body of Christ. But I don't think that's our real concern. Uh, currently, though, the church as a whole is being so infiltrated by the culture that it's difficult to discern the moral difference between those who profess Christ and those who curse him. In fact, what I've noticed in the media currently um, and on different platforms is Christians have become um, critical of Christianity. Haven't you noticed? They've become critical of Christianity, the faith of Christ. And what's not happening is the church is not coming together in a unified front to confront all of this, and it's crazy. The church needs to come together in unity, and we need to agree with the scriptures as the final authority. And say, God, we need you to, to tell us by your word how we ought to think and how we ought to behave, how we ought to live. Because if you look around in our culture right now, what will you become if you listen to them? What will you become? Yeah. We need to distinguish ourselves from the culture, other, otherwise we're going to be swallowed up by it. And you notice, it used to be complementary. 
for the world, the unbelieving world, to call us strange. It used to be a good thing, uh, that we would be strange, that we didn't go along with them. Listen to the Apostle Peter, what he says about all this. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mentality. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that is habitual sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they, the unbelievers, think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, so they speak evil of you. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 4. It used to be a compliment for the world to call us strange and to speak evil of us because we would not participate in their immoral behavior. But currently, too many in the church are in bed with the culture. In bed with the culture. They're ignorant of the fact that God has not changed his stance on sexual morality or on any other category of morality and that the judgment for such things is fixed. It's fixed. Paul said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, sex outside of marriage, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. So, so God will not change his view on morality, neither will he alter the judgment that has been determined for each form of immorality. In fact, uh, God cannot change. He cannot change his view. He is what he is by nature. It's, he's unchangeable. Okay? And many in our culture, what I'm hearing people say, trying to solve their problem by reasoning that if God is going to judge people for their sexuality, then I just won't believe in him. I've read that a number of times this last year as the sexual debate rages in our culture. Well, if God is going to judge people for sexuality, then I'll just not believe in him. But that doesn't solve the problem. It just ignores it. You know, it's like ignoring the dash light that tells you your oil is low. You can ignore the light. You can put tape over it, but it won't change reality. And before long, your engine will seize and you will be on, on foot. Right? Okay. You can jump off a cliff despite gravity, but it won't change what you experience when you hit the ground. And you can believe what you want about the final judgment and God's standard for it, but it makes no difference to the judge or what is actually going to happen. God is holy. God is holy. You've been created, we've been created in his image with the responsibility to live according to that image in this world. To be holy is to be pure, to be undefiled. Yeah. 
Sexual morality and the justification for it, Paul says, is like leaven. It will always threaten the church. And so we have to be on guard for it. And I would say more than ever, we need to be educating our young people about the truth of God's word and preparing them with how to navigate the culture that we live in, more than ever. But leaven is also used to illustrate false teaching, as Paul is talking about in the context of Galatians. It it first appears in the Gospels when Jesus was addressing the false teaching of both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two different sides of the spectrum, Matthew 16, 6 through 12. Jesus told his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, but they did not understand. So Jesus said to them, How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? See, being sensitive to what you eat as a, as in a Jewish culture, they thought that Jesus was adding some new restriction in the diet to the Mosaic law. Jesus says, but listen, I was talking to you to be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to be aware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Their teaching. The Sadducees held to a liberal theology. They were denying the resurrection, eternal life, the existence of angels. They also... Uh, were, you know, bowing to the Roman government who was oppressing the Jews. But they were less of a problem than the Pharisees, at least in the early church. Today, liberal theology is a major problem in the church. The Pharisees, though, were the legalists who essentially gave birth to these men that we've been talking about, the Judaizers who were troubling the Galatians. You see, after the resurrection, some of the Judaizers, I'm I'm sorry, some of the Pharisees came to faith in Christ, which was good, but unlike Paul, they maintained their commitment to the law of Moses. They did not abandon it. These were the men who were insisting that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised and keep the law. Remember in Acts chapter 15, they were the ones that instigated this Uh, meeting of all of the apostles in Jerusalem. And even after the apostles, by the direction of the Holy Spirit, rejected the teaching of these men, that doctrine spread like leaven throughout the Gentile churches. And that's why Paul has written the book of Galatians. He's trying to stop it before it was irreversible. Now, just as there is judgment coming for the sexually immoral, there is also judgment coming for those who teach legalism. Verse 10, Paul says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. So first, Paul was confident by the Holy Spirit that the Galatians would see the truth and be restored to it. But he was really certain that the Judaizers would face harsh judgment for perverting the gospel and turning people away from the truth. Remember, that was actually stated in Galatians chapter 1. Paul said, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have 
preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. That is anathema. Let him suffer the greatest miseries of hell. That's what Paul means. Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. So let those who tamper with the gospel of Christ and lead others astray understand one thing. You are accursed. If you do not repent, Paul is saying you will not escape. God is not messing around with deceivers. So when we consider the influence of the culture that is outside, and we look at legalism within, among a thousand other things, we've got some challenges, right? We've got some challenges. It's nothing new. So we need to be on our toes. We need to have our faces in the word. Now, I hope that over the last few months, as we've been going through the context of Galatians line by line, that we've thoroughly addressed the issue of legalism, okay? And that's embedded in your heart and mind. Um, but what we have not done, of course, it's not in the, really in the context of Galatians. Uh, it is in the, in the next section, just in a word. But I'm excited to have Alan Schlemmen come and address the cultural trends now uh, in regard to sexuality and abortion and a host of other things. And as Roger said, it's not, the apologetic is not designed to just arm you uh, to become a good arguer. That is not the point of learning apologetics. The point is to be informed and then help us engage the culture in a winsome way that we might lead people to Christ. And uh, so if you haven't signed up, please come, get your young people in here. I want the middle schoolers, high schoolers, and college age who are currently being inundated with the, the craziness of our culture to come and to hear from the scriptures, the voice of reason in a winsome way. Amen? Let's move on. Verse 11, Paul says, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. So when Paul says, if I still preach circumcision, uh, it, it could be translated since. The, the reality is assumed. And so the Judaizers had been accusing Paul of preaching circumcision. And of course, the reason they would do that is because they want the Gentiles to be circumcised. And so if Paul is preaching circumcision, then the, Gen the, the Galatians would think, well, then we should be circumcised as well, because if it's good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. Okay. Now, it is true that Paul had at one time preached circumcision. But that was before his conversion. That was when he was a Pharisee. And he believed that that was the most important thing. But then Paul's defense that he no longer preached circumcision is the fact that he continued to be persecuted. He was persecuted. Paul taught that because of the cross of Christ, we're no longer under the jurisdiction of the law. Circumcision is no more. We have to understand that particular message is offensive to the Jew. And if you read the book of Acts, you can find out exactly how offensive it was. Because what happened was, when Paul started preaching that, the Jews got word of it, and they followed Paul, they hunted him down to every city, and then they persecuted him. In one city, they stoned him, dragged him, they dragged him out of the city and stoned him. 
You remember the story, right? And Paul, of course, he itemizes all of his troubles uh, to the Corinthians. And many of his troubles came from the Jews. They hated him for his message. Hated him. And you understand that you know, Paul could have alleviated all of his troubles with the Jews. All he had to do was preach Christ plus circumcision and obedience to the law. And the Jews would have said, okay, we don't have a problem with that. We don't have a problem. But Paul says, if you remove the offense of the cross and all that it really implies, you will remove its power to save. Well, it'll become something else. It'll become what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, a perverted gospel. Perverted. The gospel can't be mingled with anything, not the law, not with liberalism. It's not compatible with anything else. The gospel of Christ is such that all philosophies, every ideology, and every culture must conform to it. It is the most offensive and intolerant thing in the universe. Just is. You don't, have, you don't personally have to be intolerant and offensive. The message will take care of itself. Okay? Take care. If you will preach it truly and faithfully, you will get to be like Paul. You will get persecuted. You will. Okay? You'll get persecuted. Paul said that everyone who desires to live godly will suffer persecution. And the context of that statement is sharing the gospel. Okay? So if you want to be like Paul, just share the truth and you'll suffer the same way. But if you pervert or contaminate it, that is the gospel, the scriptures say you will be cursed forever. Look at how serious Paul is about all this. Verse 12, he says, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Now, if you have another translation, it might say emasculate. Uh, Literally, it means mutilate, but Paul means castration. That's what it means. Those who are troubling you about circumcision, he says, I wish they wouldn't stop at circumcision. I wish they would just go the rest of the way. Paul wasn't satisfied with these Judaizers being cursed in hell forever. He wanted them to have a head start and be castrated in this life. He was angry, okay, angry. And his language is reminiscent of what we call the the precatory psalms, the precatory psalms. You know, uh, C.S. Lewis, how many of you guys know C.S. Lewis? Uh, He didn't write, he only wrote one commentary on the Bible, and most of it is on the psalms, its selections. His discussion on the precatory psalms is amazing, and I encourage you to get a copy of his commentary on it. But in the precatory psalms, we find various psalmists in their pain or in their zeal for righteousness pronouncing severe judgment uh, on their enemies. And after you read those, uh, Paul's language doesn't seem to be so harsh or inappropriate. The Judaizers were unrelenting in their effort to lead people astray into eternal misery with themselves, and for this, Paul had a holy contempt for them. 
Now, just as a sample of one of the, the precatory psalms from David, referring to those who spoke wickedly about God and used his name in vain, he says, do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Psalm 139, 21 through 22. That's a zeal for God and righteousness. And it's a good thing. But you see, those of us that have been seasoned by the meek and mild Jesus of Western culture, we are uncomfortable with that kind of speech. We are. And we would like to think that that kind of language is confined to the Old Testament, but that is wishful thinking. Paul has already used stronger language than David in chapter 1 of Galatians by cursing the Judaizers to hell, and then here by wishing they would mutilate themselves. And in our Western, being a product of our culture, the question that we have is, what is wrong with Paul? What's his problem? But if we believe in the scriptures and that Paul, when he wrote, fell under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, both in word and attitude, I don't think that's the right question to ask about someone like that. I don't. Being inspired by the Holy Spirit, expressing God's holy hatred for deceivers and deception. In that same spirit and tone, Jesus said that it would be better to have an, a millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea than to lead someone away from the truth in Christ. Let me put some of this in perspective. There's two Greek words for millstone. For millstone. Um, the first one is a handheld millstone that you would used to grind your grain. But then there was another one that was like this and like this, and it required a donkey or two to turn it over the lower millstone. What word do you think Jesus is using? I mean, a handheld millstone around your neck and being tossed into the depths of the sea, that would be problematic in itself. The millstones that have been found in the east have been weighed up to 800 pounds. Jesus said that would be better for you to be drowned with that around your neck than it would be to deceive people because the deceiver will face something far worse. Okay. So the problem isn't with Paul and how he feels about deception and deceivers He's right in line with Jesus, who we have misrepresented in our culture. If we have a problem with this, we're the ones with the problem. Let me be as clear as I can. We don't love God's people as we ought, as Paul loved the Galatians, as he loved them. We don't care about truth as we ought. We're not seeing things as they are. We don't hate evil as we should, Romans 12. We don't. And we do not understand what is at stake. But Paul did. Paul did. Now, deception doesn't just come in the form of legalism. 
as it did in Galatia. The body of Christ today is facing so much deception right now that it's insane, it's impossible to keep track of. And too many Christians are struggling to make heads or tails of all of it. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I, I read a lot of articles from Christian voices. And I have never, and I'm not that old, obviously. I have never been confronted with so much divergent views within evangelicalism before. And I don't think in history. There's just too many. And people cannot make heads or tails of it. And people are using this verse and that verse and that verse to support their view. But I'm finding less and less that a, a, a whole biblical context is not brought to bear on the issues before us. I guess it shouldn't surprise us because uh, all of the latest research has demonstrated that we're living in a time of the greatest biblical ignorance ever. It's true. Yeah, I think Barna's research on that is very good. Um, I think it's true experientially. So no wonder we can't make heads or tails when we don't understand the volume of the book. And then, instead of informed believers going to the defense of believers who've been duped by these well-polished counterfeits right now, we're dividing and tearing one another down, and we've exchanged charity for criticism. Christians are being so uncharitable right now, especially on social media. It's ugly, it's ungodly. And I could wish that so-called mature believers would repent and try to rescue God's people rather than complaining about them. Okay. Like Paul, those with discernment should be using their gifts to correct and instruct the church, not tear it down. I cringe when I hear people being critical of Christ's bride. I don't see the gift of criticism in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. I don't see it listed as uh, what is exuded from the fruit of the Spirit. It's just not there. There's pointing out truth, but we're supposed to share the truth in love in order to be winsome. That's our duty. Okay? And I think that something we fail to recognize from the Scriptures, both in the Gospels and then in the Epistles, is that Jesus and Paul's disdain and contempt was for the deceivers, not the believers. Yeah. All of that's there for our example. Verse 13, Paul says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So as the, the pendulum swings from this extreme in legalism all the way to the other side, you get moral liberalism. You have legalism, you have moral liberalism. Okay. Now, those are not, that is not to be confused with liberty. Liberty and moral liberalism are not the same. You see, biblical li liberty, as Paul teaches in Romans 6, is the freedom not to sin. The freedom not to sin. Believers have been delivered from the power of their sin nature so that we are free from it and we can now serve God in righteousness. 
Moral liberalism is the opposite. Moral liberalism yields to the lust of the flesh, which has nothing to do with freedom. Those who live according to their sin nature are in bondage to it. Jesus said that those who sin are slaves of sin. They're not free. Listen, no one is free to sin. That's a lie. Do you realize what you're made of? David said, in sin, my mother conceived me, and I was brought forth in iniquity. Moses said that we're screwed up from the time of our youth. We began well in the garden. And Solomon says, since then, we've gone on many schemes. Paul, throughout the book of Ephesians, says we are conceived broken, morally. And we're destined for a life of rebellion apart from the gospel. Okay. We're not free to sin. Yeah. But people say, well, but hasn't Paul been teaching that we're not under the law? Yes, but that doesn't lead to moral liberalism, but to greater liberty. Being under the law is slavery. Okay? Being free from the law is liberty, but freedom from the law does not lead to immorality. Just because you are without law does not mean that you are lawless. Being free from the law does not mean you are free to sin. There's no such thing as freedom to sin. Sin is a taskmaster. No one sins in freedom. But the question always comes up. As I told first service, I've probably heard this question 20 times since we started our study in Galatians. It goes something like this. If we do not have the law to restrain our sinful appetites, how will we maintain a moral standard? You see, the question falsely assumes that a moral code has the ability to control behavior, but it does not. Listen, if a moral code, such as the Ten Commandments, or any other code, if a moral code could control behavior, the history of Israel would have been marked by moral purity, seeing that they had the greatest moral code in history called the Ten Commandments. But their history is marked by moral failure. Is it not? They were judged by God because of it. If moral codes could restrain the sin nature, there would be no thieves in America because we have a moral code that says no stealing. We would be, there would be no murder because we have a no murder standard in America. Our moral code has peaceful protests as the standard. Have you been watching the news this whole year? It's not going well for either side, is it? Yeah. The truth is, as Paul told the Romans, moral codes, rather than inspiring virtue, provoke our sin nature to rebel. It does. He says, with the law comes all manner of evil desire, Romans 7, 8. The problem, though, is not with the moral code, which prescribes virtue. The problem lies within the human heart to rebel against everything that God loves. That's what we do apart from the gospel. So moral codes do not have the ability to control behavior. Moral codes can only inform the mind. 
Romans 3, 19 and 20 says that by the law is the knowledge of sin. It informs the mind. So it's really ignorant to ask, if we have no moral code, what is there to control my behavior? When is the last time that the speed limit controlled your gas pedal? It has not, and it never will. That's called magic. Okay? It's also as ignorant to conclude that because we're not under the law, we can live like the devil. That's ignorant as well. Paul told the Romans, and listen carefully, sin, living like the devil, shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace, Romans 6.14. And just because the Christian is not under law does not mean that he is free to sin. A Christian cannot use his liberty in Christ to sin because that's just not what Christian liberty does. It doesn't do that. Christian liberty sets someone free to live righteously. Again, we are free from the law, and we are free not to sin. We're free. Through the gospel, we've been delivered from the law's jurisdiction, and we've been delivered from our slavery to sin. That's the product of the gospel. And now that we've been set free from the bondage of sin, Paul concludes that we can freely love and serve one another. Freely. Selfish, sacrificial service is one of the greatest evidences of a heart that's been liberated by the gospel. Selfless, sacrificial service. How so? Well, we're not under the compulsion of law, and our motives don't have to be contaminated by the sin nature. That's how. Through the gospel, the love of God in us seeks the ultimate good of others, which manifests itself in service. The greatest proof of that is Jesus. He came to the world in love, right? Jesus said, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, he did not come to be served, but to serve and then to give his life a ransom for many. So the true manifestation of love is service and sacrifice. To give his life a ransom, to give his blood to redeem humanity. God's love in us produces that. That's why Jesus said the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. Verse 14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we typically think that that comes from Jesus in the New Testament. It's not. It's from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which I think is one of the most intriguing laws or commands in the scripture. And here's why. It assumes from the lips of Jesus, that people love themselves. And they certainly do. Okay. But more than that, it assumes that we have enough love for ourselves that if we were to bestow it on others, we would fulfill the perfect law of God. Isn't that what it assumes? Yeah. All of its demands, the law, regarding our fellow man would be satisfied. But there is a problem with all this. Sin has perverted love. 
by turning it inward, showing affection for self, and making everything about me. Trust me, I know all about me. Okay? It's, I'm self-consuming. I'm self-interested. I'm all about me. Okay? That's what sin has done to love. And whenever love is perverted and self becomes the object of affection, it becomes something else altogether. It becomes a toxin, and it causes the person to do all kinds of wacky and evil things for self, for me, myself, and I. You know, from the scriptures, I'm convinced that God does not want us to love ourselves 100%. God does not want us to love ourselves, but to love others and to be loved by him. I know our culture is busy telling us that we need to love ourselves more, but what we really need is for God to love us, for us to experience his love. And when the God of the universe, his love is in you, you are fulfilled. You're fulfilled. Self-love is a poison to the soul and the psyche. You know, Paul... He warned that in the last days, perilous times would come. Why? Because men would be lovers of themselves. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. Perilous times is marked by self-love. Does it look like we're in perilous times? And I guarantee what you'll find at the forefront of all of it is self-love. Guarantee. But when the Holy Spirit regenerates the soul, love is liberated to look outward and then to seek the ultimate good of others. So it's interesting. Paul's conclusion is that Christian liberty doesn't lead to a violation of the law's morality, but to its ultimate fulfillment. The essence of the law is manifest in Christian liberty. That's his conclusion. As Paul told the Romans, do we make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Romans 3.31. Now, in the original language, Paul does not say the law. He just says law. He's referring to the principles of morality, not the Ten Commandments. So it's by our relationship to Christ through faith that we're free to serve God in righteousness. We demonstrate that through love. And Paul says, that fulfills the law. But as long as the heart is under the law's dominion, it is not free to fulfill what is stated there. We must be free from the law, and we must be free not to sin. And that can only happen through the gospel of grace. Verse 15. But... If you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. So apparently, not everyone in Galatia was going for what the Judaizers were selling. And their perversion of the gospel was causing some vicious arguments in the church itself. You guys ever been in a a church that is arguing with itself? It's nuts. Now, of course, 
It's important to address the differences, especially if there's false doctrine in the church. It has to be discussed, but it has to be done in a mature way, coming to a biblical solution, because it's not okay to be ungodly. The words to bite, devour, and consume uh, were typical words used to describe what animals do when they're arguing. Can we be like animals? We can. Yeah, it's not fitting for us, though. But bad theology was causing big arguments, as it should, because it was threatening the health and stability of the church that was already struggling. And you guys, that's always what Satan has planned. He wants to sow confusion. He wants to divide the body so that he can conquer it. That's his plan. Now, Paul doesn't give us very much detail here. So obviously, the Galatians, when they read that, they understood what Paul's talking about. Uh, the best we can arrive at is that because Paul's attention in the chapter was directed to those who are entertaining the doctrine of Judaizers, they're the ones getting the brunt end of this rebuke. And, and in my experience, it's usually those who embrace bad theology who have a, a tendency to be self-righteous and divisive. I, I, bad theology, I think, is always asking for a fight. And because bad theology and doctrine is always trying to press its way into the church, uh, we need to be ready with a unified front. We need to be informed. But it has to be in, or with rather, a certain disposition. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 verses 24 through 26, he says, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. Listen to that again. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. I'll tell you, right now, I would really love to see that among believers. A little patience, a little humility, being informed about the biblical facts, also, not afraid to confront error. Amen? I guess that'll be our experiment, the 30th and 31st. It's how to confront error, to be humil- humble, to be winsome, and the rest. Okay, well, that's what I have for you this morning. That wraps up the first major section of Galatians. We will turn the corner now to what Paul addresses as the alternative to being law keepers. Okay? The law cannot make us moral people. So what then makes us moral? It's the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit. So please read ahead, prepare yourself, and uh, we'll address it. Why don't you stand up and we'll pray. I'll get you out of here. You guys are the hard service because it's about now that you get struck with hunger pains and Actually, the hard service is, is, like at conferences, the poor 
speaker that goes, that has to speak after lunch, when everybody's stomach is full and, yeah. You just pray to God that he's not monotone like me and uh, you'll get through it. So let's pray. Well, Lord, as you are aware, the church is facing an overwhelming amount of deception and darkness. And Lord, we need your mind. We need to know the scriptures. We need to have your heart. Lord, we want to reach as many as we can. So we can't just have a ready argument. We have to have a ready heart. And we have to be more concerned about people than winning an argument. And Lord, I believe that by your spirit, it takes skill. And so I pray that you would equip us, you would help us, Lord, you would empower us. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, I thank you for my church family and what a blessing they are. And I pray that this week, Lord, that you'd lavish your grace upon them, help them to walk in grace to walk according to your spirit and that the fruit of the spirit would just flow from their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, love you guys. Lord bless you.